This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, December 23rd, 2009. I'm Caleb Brown. Capitalism means unleashing our most uncharitable motivations, leading us to cruelly take wealth from others and hoard it. That line of thinking and others like it leads many Christians to oppose capitalism. The incompatibility of Christianity and capitalism is a fiction, according to Jay Richards, author of the new book Money, Greed, and God. Why capitalism is the solution and not the problem, he spoke at the Cato Institute November 4th. I would maintain that most of the stuff that a person needs to be an educated citizen, to be able to evaluate public policy uh, in economics, uh, doesn't require that you have an advanced degree or even that you've had a course in macroeconomics. It just requires that you think carefully uh, through various issues. And in fact, I think almost every intellectual mistake that Christians and frankly others make about economics can be boiled down into one of these eight myths that I talk about in the book. I'm not going to obviously talk about all eight myths here today. I want to just briefly touch on three so that you kind of get an idea of, of what I'm trying to do. First, what I call the piety myth, and most of you are probably familiar with the so-called law of unintended consequences. The intentions for a policy, of course, uh, don't bear any relation to the actual effects of the policy. City Council's intentions on a rent control policy might be to help the poor have affordable housing. The effect, nevertheless, is going to be to create a shortage of affordable housing, as we all know from experience. The piety myth, though, I think is especially especially acute problem for religious people and Christians in particular. And the reason is this. Um, if you're a Christian uh, or you're just a theist in general, then you think that why you do things is morally relevant. That is, your, your piety, your intentions, uh, why you do things, has something to do with your status before God. God cares about why I do things. He doesn't just want me to do good things. He wants me to do them for the right reason. We're commanded to love the Lord our gods with our hearts and with our souls and with our minds. So we focus on the heart part. The problem is, is uh, as we all know, the heart part, that is uh, why we do something, while it might be spiritually or morally relevant in our, connect, in our relationship with God, it's not economically relevant. In fact, in most cases, it's economically irrelevant. This is such an important point that Henry Hazlitt, in his terrific book called Economics in One Lesson, actually defined the art of economics this way. Here's what Hazlitt said. He said, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the longer effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups. Now, he's, notice he's not talking about the science of economics. This is the art of economics. And the art of economics, Hazlitt thinks, is it's something like an intellectual disposition that you get down in your bones, so that it's, it, it's in you at an intuitive level, so that for any policy that someone proposes, your mind immediately asks this question, and then what will happen? Right? Regardless of the policy, regardless of the purposes or intentions of those who are advocating it, if you're practiced in the art of economics, your mind will say, and then what would happen? What will be the consequences? And you trace those consequences. Most of the time, this is not rocket science. We could usually do this logically. And in most economic policies, we can also do it empirically because we have experience with it. Now, sometimes when I, when I speak on Christian college campuses, I will spend an entire hour doing nothing but talking about this. I was at Houston Baptist University about a month ago. I spent an hour simply giving examples of uh, uh, situations in which a number of influential people believe the piety myth, focused all of their moral attention and energy on their intentions, and spent apparently no time thinking about the consequences of policies, uh, inevitably to, to very bad result. 
Let me just give you one very brief example, the current example, the financial crisis. Now, obviously, this is a very complicated issue. I've spent six months reading books and articles on the financial crisis and still don't feel like I fully grasp it. But I do think uh, at the foundation of the crisis, which we all recall had something to do with the su subprime mortgage crisis, was a series of good intentions that influenced policy over a period of decades. Now, what was the good intention? The good intention was to help lower income Americans and more Americans have access to affordable housing. That's good, all things being equal, most of us would like for people to own their homes rather than merely rent. But as we all now know, this led to a series of policies, one of encouraging private banks to lower their eligibility standards for mortgages, and uh, the same sort of thing in so-called government-sponsored enterprises, these semi-public, semi-private banks, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac which changed the series of incentives over a period of years so that loan officers who in a free market would have acted entirely differently in the system that had been set up made decisions uh, that led in the end to a huge number of defaults on loans. Now the problem is of course is that the financial crisis has been blamed not on a series of bad policy decisions and in incentives but of course on the free market. But just think about it for a minute. Let's say you're a loan officer at a local bank. All right, you're going to lend someone money, and you know your bank is going to get stuck with the loan. You're not going to be able to offload it anywhere. Everybody's going to remember that you're the one that made the loan, right? Uh, and you've got to hold on to it. You don't want it to default over a 30-year period. You're going to act in a certain way, right? You're going to want to make sure the person borrowing the money can afford it. You're going to want to know something about their, uh, their credit rating. Uh, you're going to want them to have some skin in the game, so you're probably going to want them to have a down payment. All these kind of natural market incentives click in so that you'll, everything you do will be organized so that ideally you can make a profit, but certainly that you don't lend someone money for a house that they can't afford. Now change the scenario just slightly so that the loan officer now knows, in fact, nobody's really looking all that closely at uh, the criteria for the person borrowing the loan. And in fact, there's strange legal and social pressure to lend money to people in particular uh, who have bad credit ratings and have very little evidence uh, that they'll be able to repay the loans. You also know you'll quickly be able to offload the loan, that that loan itself will be chopped up and securitized, will be amplified in various derivatives and sold to places like little northern towns in Norway, all right? Completely lost, right? Your incentives there are gonna be entirely different. And yet that's the scenario that we set up. It's totally strange, a complete sort of subversion of market incentives, all motivated for good intentions, right? All motivated by many people who had to have believed the piety myth because the simple incentives and the problems, you can describe them as I did, I think, in two minutes. And yet they happened. I think those kinds of policies, primarily at least, if not only happen, because a lot of people believe the piety myth. The piety myth, I think, is especially acute for religious people because we think why we did things are important. But I would argue that despite that, when we're in the policy realm, whether you're religious or non-religious, what you do should take up all of our attention. We should focus morally on the effects of a policy and simply ignore our intentions. Good intentions can lead to bad policies. Bad intentions can lead to good policies. It simply doesn't matter. Well, that's the, the first myth. The second one, and the one I want to spend most of the time on here, is the so-called greed myth. Now, greed myth is especially problematic because both critics and champions of capitalism, I think, believe it. Now, what's the greed myth? A greed myth is simply believing that the essence of capitalism or greed is greed, or that capitalism is based on greed. This is an extremely popular idea. In fact, several of my most uh, you know, most appreciated uh, free marketers, people like John Stossel and Walter Williams, have, have made this argument. 
it's always sort of immortalized by this uh, Michael Douglas character, Gordon Gecko, in the great uh, Oliver Stone movie in 1987, Wall Street. I'm sure some of you, at least the ones of you that are my age or older, have seen this. If you haven't seen it and you're younger, Stone is doing a sequel, so you get to see it next year, actually. But he gives, Gecko gives this terrific speech in the middle of the film uh, that goes like this. He said, greed is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its, in all its forms has marked the upward surge of mankind. Quite inspiring. Now, you might say, okay, well, yeah, right. But this, this character, he's fictional. He's an Oliver Stone character. This is Oliver Stone's caricature of the capitalist. Of course, you probably know that's not true. In fact, some of the most prominent defenders of capitalism in the 20th century made something like the same argument. Ayn Rand, for instance, whose books still sell about 300,000 copies a year. Here's how she put it in one of her books. She said, capitalism and altruism are incompatible. They're philosophical opposites. They cannot coexist in the same man or in the same society. She wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness. Now, it probably doesn't take a lot of historical knowledge to know that selfishness or greed has always been considered in the Judeo-Christian tradition uh, one of the seven deadly sins, right? So to identify it with a virtue is at the very least a kind of rhetorical non-starter for anyone whose, whose moral sensibilities are shaped by the Judeo-Christian tradition. And this was my problem for years. In fact, I uh, started reading Rand when I was a senior in college. It was completely transfixed by her arguments utterly persuaded in her arguments against collectivism, but nevertheless continued to be uneasy about her basic argument. It wasn't until I read people like George Gilder and Michael Novak several years later that I realized, no, in fact, you can make a moral defense of capitalism quite apart from this. But there's still this problem. Is it, is it true? Is capitalism uh, somehow based on greed, on selfishness? And a lot of people actually think it's not just Rand that said that. In fact, the sort of father of modern capitalism, Adam Smith, made an argument like this. Now, most people don't actually read Smith's uh, very thick tome, The Wealth of Nations. They read a couple of choice quotes pulled out of context. So let me give you a couple of examples. Here's Adam Smith on self-interest. This is in his Wealth of Nations. He says, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, the baker that we expect our meal, but from his regard to his own interest. Of course, Smith says all sorts of things like this. Elsewhere, he talks about the invisible hand. Here's what he says. In spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity, business people are led as if by an invisible hand, uh, and thus without intending it, without knowing it, advance the interest of the society. Now, if you look at this superficially, you might think, well, he's saying more or less the same thing. Uh, greedy, self-interested business people uh, through the market somehow uh, lead to sort of good results. So is Smith saying greed is good? That's how a lot of people read him. In fact, I've got a collection of, of well-known e economists and scholars that think Smith was arguing more or less the same thing that Ayn Rand was. But he wasn't. In fact, this is the only place that I think uh, requires you know, maybe two minutes of, of attention because I think there's a couple of really important nuances here that people miss, especially those of us that defend the free market. It's important to remember, first of all, Smith was a moral philosopher, not an economist. He'd written a, a book previous to The Wealth of Nations called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, in which he develops this idea that human beings in sort of social settings and families and communities develop natural sympathies for each other. Moreover, Smith himself had criticized Bernard Mandeville, 
who had argued that greed is good. Mandeville is a Dutchman who wrote this book, uh, The Fable of the Bees, which basically argued about, it was a fable of British society. It argued that all these little greedy bees sort of pursuing their uh, own interests nevertheless led to a productive uh, beehive, but they grumbled because of the moral problem. So Joe finally said, okay, fine, you can all be virtuous. They become virtuous and the beehive falls apart. Okay, so Mandeville, right, was arguing that greed is good. What did Smith say about Mandeville? He said, Mandeville's system is wholly pernicious. Smith was a moral philosopher. He didn't think greed or, uh, was a virtue. He didn't think selfishness was a virtue. Uh, he never said that. The next point is this. Mere self-interest in Smith's term is not the same as selfishness. Self-interest, if you look at Smith, is basically what we know and what we're responsible for. So the butcher, he doesn't have to be thinking about the ends or the purposes of his customers. He does have to think, what can I provide that they will freely buy, right? So he has to be other-directed in that way. But he can simply be concerned about his day-to-day -day concerns, you know, putting food on the table, you know, getting, affording braces or college education for his children, things like that. That's his self-interest. That's the sort of narrow purview of things that he's concerned with. But that's not the same as selfishness, right? Every time you take a breath or take your vitamins or look both ways before you cross the street, right? Or eat three square meals a day or show up to work on time, you're acting in your self-interest. Those things aren't only not bad, they're actually praiseworthy. We ought to do those things. The basis of the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them to do unto you, is based in a properly ordered type of self-love. So self-interest is not itself morally problematic. The genius of the market, as Smith said, is that people can pursue their narrow self-interest as an end, and nevertheless, because of the incentives of the market, a socially beneficial order can be created. That's entirely different from saying that greed is good. In fact, notice Smith's claim previously. He says, in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity. His point wasn't that greed is good because it leads to a socially beneficial outcome. His point wasn't that the butcher, the brewer, and the baker ought to be selfish. He says, in spite of their natural selfishness and rapacity. In other words, capitalism, free market capitalism, as long as the rules are set up right, will channel not only legitimate self-interest, but even pernicious greed and other vices into socially beneficial outcome. But saying capitalism channels greed is not the same as saying either that greed is good or that capitalism is based on greed. If that's the only thing you remember uh, from my talk, I hope you'll remember that. Well, and then the third, which probably most of us here are familiar with, what I call the zero-sum game myth. A zero-sum game myth obviously is drawn from a, a term from game theory. Uh, and game theory talks about three different types of games. A zero-sum game is simply a game in which if somebody wins, somebody loses. It's like adding one and negative one. It sums to zero, right? It equals a zero. So like a political race in a congressional district. One person wins, somebody else loses. Chess, checkers, those are all zero-sum games. The problem is a lot of people think market economies are zero-sum games. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. Someone gets more than their fair share. If I get rich, won't that cause someone else to get poor? And most of us know almost immediately, well, of course that's not right. But it's a real question that ought to be surfaced. Is the market economy intrinsically a zero-sum game. Because remember, there's a couple of other types of games. Besides a win-lose or zero-sum game, there's the lose-lose games, right? That none of us play for obvious reasons, you know, at least more than once, right? But then there's win-win games. So the question is always, what kind of economies fall into which kinds of games? I think if you ask the question that's way, that way, it's quite clear that a market economy is a win-win game. Now, the first easy response is simply the logic 
of free trade, right? The logic of free trade requires that the actors or the, the trading partners be free on both sides. If I steal something from someone, it's not a free trade. But if I trade $15 with my barber to cut my hair, of course, she values my money more than the time it took her to cut my hair. I value her cutting my hair more than $15. We both perceive our, ourselves as better off as a result. That by definition, because of the rules of the game, is win-win, even when you don't add anything new to the system. Of course, the second idea is often illustrated in terms of a pie. Now, I think of a cherry pie. Now, what, what's a pie like? You know, a pie is a fixed size, uh, uh, you know, fixed capacity, a fixed weight and volume. It can sit on the shelf and get cold. But when you slice up a pie, it's a physical manifestation of a zero-sum game, right? So if one person gets too large of a slice, somebody else gets a smaller slice. By the way, I remember George Bush uh, famously one time said in a presidential debate that he believed in making the pie higher, which I thought was just a great quote. <laughs> and he joked, he later said he was on record as believing we should make the pie higher. What he, of course, meant was to make the, the pie larger. Now, we know this, right? We, we know that various economic theories believed that the market economy was a zero-sum game. This is what Karl Marx said in his Communist Manifesto. He believed that if the total amount of wealth over time would be transferred from the proletariat, from the workers, to the capitalists. So if you look at this pie here, you, this is not the numbers of people, it's the total amount of wealth. The red are the workers, the chartreuse is, are the capitalists. Marx's claim is that over time, the total amount of wealth, because of the logic of capitalism, would get transferred from the workers to the capitalists. Capitalists would hire uh, wage earners, pay them a wage, uh, hopefully make a profit on the product, a shirt or, or something like that. Take the profit, not squander it. You take the profit and reinvest it in greater capital and equipment so that the labor would be more productive. Then he could pay the workers even less and hire even fewer. So Marx predicted that over time, you'd get a larger and larger group of workers, many unemployed, who are poorer and poorer, and the capitalist would acquire the vast majority of the wealth, thus capitalism sowing the seeds of its own destruction because of the revolt of uh, the injustice of the workers. Now, that was his prediction, of course. The prediction was based on a more or less zero-sum game view of capitalism. Yet, while he was writing the Communist Manifesto in his apartment, a few miles away, factory workers' wages were going up rather than down, fundamentally and empirically contradicting his argument. We know now why he got that wrong. But remember, half the human race languished under uh, his philosophical system for a good part of the 20th century. We know the market reality is that over time, and in general, the market grows. Now, I know you're all staggered by my animation prowess here, right? <laughs> I don't have a designer that helps me. It's the best I can do. So I'm just illustrating the point, right? The market grows. The pie grows. And that's important because what that means is that somebody could get fabulously wealthy in a market economy, not because they took money from someone else, but because they created wealth that wasn't there before. Wealth that provided jobs and provided things for people that they freely wanted. That's the sort of miracle of the market. Now, we know that economically. We know that over time, despite bumps and bruises, the economy grows, the pie grows. But I find this actually really interesting theologically because economists, of course, know empirically that the economy grows. But there's a theological question that you might ask, well, why is this? What would man be like? What must human beings be like if uh, human beings are able to create wealth? I mean, think about it. We're able to take sand, right, which is virtually free, create things like integrated circuits, computer chips, and fiber optic cables. Now this, if, if you uh, sort of know the Judeo-Christian tradition, you'd say, well, this is exactly what we should expect. God creates human beings in his image. God, the creator, can call the universe into existence, and he creates these beings within the created universe in his image 
So in some sense, presumably, our image will reflect God's creativity. God, the creator with a capital C, human beings are creators with lowercase c's. God can call the entire universe into existence by free choice. We take the material substrate that God has given us and our ingenuity, and we create wealth that wasn't there before. That, I think, is a, an economic reality and empirical insight that lends itself to an obvious theological insight. And I would hope that more uh, Christians would understand that and would understand the moral virtues and potential of the market economy. Thank you. Jay Richards is author of the new book, Money, Greed, and God, Why Capitalism is the Solution and Not the Problem. You can watch the full book forum from November 4th at cato.org.